You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, tonight it's, uh, it's quite simple in this passage. If you've got a bulletin, you can see the words of, to the title is just simply see, feel, act. And I can tell you right now that everything that I'm about to say is all about see, feel, act. And if you wrote in your notes, see, feel, act, then you're done. You can be dismissed. We're through with the night. That's it. That's the whole message right there in a nutshell. It shows up in this passage, and you probably caught it, but as the different individuals in the story interact, Jesus highlights the story of the Good Samaritan. And in verse 33, it says this, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him see, he felt compassion, that's feel, And I just lost my place. He had compassion, feel, and then he went to him and he bound him and he poured and he said him and he brought him and he paid for him and he said he would come back. In other words, everything that followed from this is that he saw, he felt, and then he did something with what he felt. This principle in scripture shows up over and over again, and we don't often note it, but it shows up in some pretty powerful stories as well. So if you imagine the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, that very same principle is laid out right there. The same thing is true. It says when it was about the dinner time, he looked out at the crowd. He could see that they were hungry. He saw, he felt compassion in his heart, and he directed the disciples to then go do that magic trick he did with the five loaves and the two fish. Pretty cool story, but it came about because he saw, he felt, and then he acted. Even the story of the prodigal son is a story where as the son is returning back to the father, he's still a far way off, and Scripture stops and says, when the father saw his son, he felt compassion in his heart, and he ran to him. And all throughout Scripture, more with Jesus, some with the disciples, and throughout other places in the the Bible, we find this principle again and again, that you see, you feel, and then you act. And it should be quite simple, except that sometimes when we see, we feel, we, we act, but it's not always a good thing. And there's a difference on those things we respond to. You see it most often with children. If mom says no snacks and it's almost dinner time and a child comes into the kitchen and it may be those very same self chocolate chip cookies, not that I would have ever done this, but a child might see those cookies, see, feel hunger and reach and grab one. And as they grab that, they've taken that act. And so that's good, right? And mom comes in and says, why? I just told you not to have snacks before dinner. Well, I'm just doing what the preacher said. You know, he said, see, feel, act. I saw, I felt, I acted. You've seen it. You know, two brothers, they're sitting there playing, and one of them starts screaming. Mom comes running in the room. What happened? He hit me. Why'd you hit him? Well, I saw that he was playing with my toy. It made me angry, so I hit him. I saw, I felt, I acted, right? This is perfect. No, see, the difference there is, is that when you see and you feel, and the feel is for your own selfish flesh pleasure, pleasures of your own flesh, and you act upon that, that turns out badly. Think about the times in your life that you've made poor decisions. It almost follows that track every time. That you see something you desire for you and your flesh, and you act upon it, and then it turns out to be destructive to your life. I work at the rescue mission. I deal with that on a regular basis if people have, have really made choices that somehow destroy their lives based on that very principle. 
This principle is based on the character and the nature of God himself, who stops and when he sees, he feels more about that person than he does about himself. He cares more about what they're feeling, what they're going through, than what he's going through. It's why he came to die on the cross. It's because when he saw the predicament that we were in, he felt compassion and he acted in a way that put him at disadvantage, but put us at great advantage. It's a beautiful thing, this whole concept, but it's based on the nature and the character of God, not on the nature and character of our flesh. So that's the principle, really simple, laid out. And as we jump into this, it's that idea that we want to play with. So the problem is, is that we're not very good at it. Why is it that this guy's a lawyer that Jesus is talking to? He's one of the high-end intelligent guys. He's going through this, and he does that little question. Well, who's my neighbor? And there's a lot of different ways you can do that inflection. We won't go through all of them. But it's like, yeah, well, who's my neighbor? You know, he could do it a thousand different ways. We don't get the inflection. We just get this sense that he's pushing back a little bit on Jesus. And to love your neighbor as yourself. So he wants to appear smart and erudite. And so he asks another question that seems to be probing. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story. A story about the Samaritan. And that's the part we hear about the sermon taught all the time. Is that it's not the priest and the Levite. It's the Samaritan. But the principle of what the Samaritan does. Is that whole thing that he sees. And what we look at with the, the priest and the Levite. Is they also see. Did you notice that in the passage? It says that when they saw, so likewise, well, we'll back up just a little bit. Verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he saw him, he too passed on the other side. The idea is, is that most of us see. The problem isn't with the scene. We see needs. We see problems. We see challenges in our community. We see when someone else is suffering. We see someone else's hurt and loneliness and despair. So it's not usually that. There are times when in our modern day era, we can live in the suburbs and you can have a garage door opener and you can drive into your neighborhood and you can have your garage door open. You can pull in and close that door and never see your neighbors because they're doing the same thing. I don't want you to feel guilty if you have a garage door opener. I don't have one. It's just jealousy. That's the only reason I bring it up. But the idea is, is that we can indeed put ourselves in gated communities that keep us away from some of the painful, struggling parts of our society and keep us safe in our little cocoons. And I'm not saying gated communities are wrong. What I'm saying is, is that there's a situation that where we sometimes have the ability to see and we choose to put ourselves where we won't see. We don't go to those neighborhoods where it might make us feel uncomfortable. We avoid areas, Pioneer Square, where I get a chance to work. So there's a lot of my friends who stop and go, yeah, I never go down there because it just, it, it just doesn't feel safe or it makes me feel sad or it makes me feel something. So what they've chosen to do is to not see. They've, in essence, gone to the other side of the road. And it's not so much that I'm telling you all need to go down to Pioneer Square either. What I'm saying is, is that see things sometimes has a problem with us. But I don't think that's the big problem. The feel part, sometimes we've talked about that, that sometimes we feel for our flesh. But other times, if we see somebody who's suffering, most times we're moved with compassion when we see somebody who's hurting. 
I love watching this. This is going to sound really bad now. When a kid falls in on his bike and falls down and crashes, and it's like, if you leave it just there, he loves to watch kids fall and fall on their bikes, you know. No, I love to watch what anybody does when somebody sees a child fall. You can watch this at Disneyland. One child falls, and the whole crowd responsively moves towards that child. It's miraculous. It's not even their kid. But everybody feels compassion when they see that. There's a simple principle there that stops and says we are, we are created in the nature of God that when we see someone suffering, we do feel compassion. And if we don't, there's something else deeply wrong there. What I believe, though, is that that's not normally the case where the wheels come off on this. We do see, we do feel compassion, that the bigger problem is that we don't act is that sometimes we see, we even feel something, and then we don't respond in a way that brings about any good to the scenario. So I want to share a story out of my own life that it's actually a story I don't like because I didn't do well with it. But it's a great example of the failure to act. There's actually a Latin phrase like that, and in the law you can use this, but it's actus rus, which means failure to act, and in some cases it can be punishable by law. It's the times when you see things and you don't do anything about them. And in this case, I had come to the mission, um, I had, as we've talked about, I had never been to the mission, I had never worked at a mission, and so at this point it was time to get a crash course in rescue mission stuff. So I get around and I get a chance to go to our women and children's shelters. I get a chance to go to our youth programs that are scattered all throughout the county. I get a chance to go to our dental clinics and I get a chance to go and, and see our attorneys working in the legal clinic. I get to see our prison outreach and all the different things the mission does. And I could go on and on on the different variety of ministries. But at one point in time, um, Herb Fifner, many of you may know Herb. Herb was the previous president. We overlapped our, our tenures for a little bit so I could learn from him. And so he set up my travel itinerary to go to the different ministries. And so he said, all right, the next stop that I have for you is to go to the men's shelter. And so he set up a four days, three nights, all expenses paid trip to the men's shelter. <laughs> you just stay there. All you can eat, just hang out there. It's wonderful. It was wonderful, but it was uh, very sobering. It was, it was an eye-opener to me about poverty and brokenness and addiction and mental health and some of the challenges that confront the streets of major American cities. And I got to see it firsthand, but this story begins on the very last night that I was there. We went out on a search and rescue van that the mission sends out every night, and the van goes out into the different parts of the city and out throughout the county, and it goes underneath the freeways and finds people that are sleeping in their cars or in bushes, and we make sure that they're safe. We bring them blankets, we bring them hot chocolate and sandwiches and hats and gloves and to help them get through the night, but more importantly was we bring them love. We bring them relationship and we bring them a touch that somebody in this world knows they're out there and that we are praying for them and begging for them to come in, that there's a safe place they can come to if they're ready. So that van is going out and we go out on this and it's a November night. It is cold. It's rainy. Wind's blowing. It's miserable. We're out and we're delivering blankets and sandwiches and things like that and loving on people out there. 
and we're getting towards the end of the night. And as we get towards the end of the night, we go to the International District, which at that time was kind of the meth neighborhood. That's where you could find meth if you needed to buy drugs. That was the place to go. And at that point, the meth addicts tend to, meth actually amps you up. You get all antsy and you're just almost agitated. You're just moving around constantly. And in that process, we save that stuff for the end of the night because they don't go to bed. They're still going to be up when everybody else is winding down and going to sleep. So we pull up into this one area and, and they come out of the woodwork just appearing and they're giving, we're handing out sandwiches and jackets and different things. And the last of them are starting to drift off. It's getting later. It's by this time, midnight, 1230 in the morning. And uh, we're cold, we're tired, we're wet, we're just about out of stuff, we're about to close the van doors. And off in the distance, we hear this, wait, wait. And I look up the street, and coming down the street is this big kid, and, and, and he's a young man, but big guy, young guy, and he's running down the street, running hard, he's, wait, wait. But the other thing I hear is this slap, 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 slap. And I'm looking to try to figure out what the noise is. And as he gets closer, I can tell that he is not wearing any shoes. He's running in his socks. And you know how when you run in your socks in the rain, you guys do that on a regular basis, don't you? Just go out and run without shoes, just in your socks. He's running in his socks. His socks have gotten completely soaked, pouring down rain, the streets wet. His socks have taken up all the water. And as they get heavier, the sock kind of pulls off your foot and the toes get long. Come on, tell me you've once in your life done that. So he's doing that. He's coming, and the slap, slap, slap we hear is these socks, as they're just soaked, slapping down the street. He comes slapping right up to the van. He comes up to the van. He's breathing hard. He says, oh, thanks for waiting. Do you guys have any dry socks? <laughs> and I'm looking at him. It's pouring down rain. He's in wet socks. And I'm thinking, we're going to give him wet socks. In seconds, they're going to be just as wet. And so I say to him, dude, you don't need socks. You need shoes. And he turns and he looks at me and he says, well, do you have any? No. And now suddenly I feel silly. It's like, of course we don't have, we can't carry shoe sizes for everybody who might need shoes. So we don't carry shoes. So he says, all right, then can I have some socks? Yeah, socks sound like a good idea. And so we're getting him socks. We get him some hot chocolate. But here's, the, here's where the whole thing comes down is that at that moment, I see a person in need, and I feel. The next problem, will I act? Because I don't know what happens to you, but there's so many times throughout a day where God speaks to me, not in an audible voice, not with words that I can that sound like James Earl Jones. I wish, you know, Jeff. Give him your shoes. I ought to have just given him my shoes, you know? But that's not what it sounded like, is it? Instead, it's the idea that I saw, I felt, and I thought, you know what? I, I can respond to this. And so God, this little mysterious voice stops and says, give him your shoes. And I think about it, and I say, no. <laughs> no, because what am I going to wear? His socks are already wet. If I take my shoes off, now my socks are going to be wet. This isn't a win-win. And I'm going through all kinds of things in my head about my shoes. And you need to know what kind of shoes I was wearing right then. 
These are old running shoes, the ones I wouldn't even run in anymore, that have been demoted down to lawn mowing shoes. So bad with green grass stains that my wife won't even let them in the house anymore. They stay out in a shed. Leave those out there. Those are the shoes I chose to wear because I thought, I'm going out in the search and rescue van, and it's going to be cold and wet and muddy, and I don't know what I'm going to step in. I'm going to wear my worst pair of shoes because at that point, I won't care that they get ruined. It's those shoes that I'm not wanting to give up. I said, really? Back at home in my closet, I have more shoes of all different kinds of varieties. And some of you are looking at me judgmentally, and you have shoes in your closet too, so just take that, will you? (laughs) But here's what happens. I'm wrestling with this issue, and I, I see, and I feel, and I know I need to act. But I put in a couple of extra steps just to see for sure whether I should act. So I stop, and I say, I look at his feet, and he's got big feet. Now, it might be because the socks are really long on his feet, but, but he looks like he's got big feet. So I ask him, he's a big kid, and I say, hey, what size do you wear? And I wear size 11 to 12, depending on the brand of shoe. And he says, size 13. And I'm thinking, thank you, Lord. <laughs> so glad that it wasn't 11 or 12. I'm out of this. But he looks at me, and then he looks down at my feet like, why did you ask? And he looks at my feet to see what size my feet are. Like he's sizing me up or something. Not that I didn't just do the same thing to him. (laughs) But at that point in time, I realize, all right, hang on. So I stop and I pull off a shoe. And I'm doing this flamingo thing, you know, and because this sock is dry. (laughs) And I loosen up the shoe and I hand it to him. And literally, as he takes it to put it on, I'm thinking in my head and my heart, please don't fit, please don't fit, please don't fit. He slips the shoe on, and literally, I am not kidding you, he says to me, ah, just like Cinderella. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, no, no, this is not like Cinderella. There's not a bit of this that's like Cinderella. That's not glass. I'm not a woman. There's nothing like that that's like Cinderella. But I'm standing there like this, and he keeps looking at me. <laughs> you want both shoes? And I pull off the second shoe, and I give it to him. And the staff that is there, they think this is wonderful. Oh, Jeff just gave away his shoes. And I'm going, it is not wonderful. I have failed on every level of this. Because though he got my shoes in the end, I was fighting it to the end. There's a part of us that the problem isn't what we see. The problem isn't what we even feel. Most often, the problem is what we do of whether we act on those things that God whispers to us to do. He calls us out to reach out to a friend, to make that phone call, to stop and talk to that neighbor. And so often we fail to act. This is a challenge for all of us. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. He says, you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And then then you also are supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. He calls that to each of us to be able to see, feel, and act, to be able to do those things and to respond in such a way. 
There's a part of the mission that we have a very clear um, phrase that we use often that says that homelessness is not so much a resource issue as it is a relationship issue. We're not talking about how much you can give or what you can do. It wasn't even about my shoes. It was about the relationship that was beginning to be built with this young man. And it's that situation that so often the question that comes to me as the president of the mission, somebody stops and says, you work at Union Gospel Mission? Yeah. As soon as they hear that, the first question most times is, oh, can you answer something for me? When I come up to a stoplight or if I'm coming off an off ramp and there's a homeless person flying the sign holding the cardboard, the question is, should I give him money? What do I do with that? Any of you ever wonder that? That's the question of the day. Everybody wonders that. So here's the answer. Most, not all, but most homeless individuals that are standing there flying the sign are looking for funding for something that keeps them out there. And it's not necessary that all of them are looking for drugs or alcohol, but the vast majority are. So if we know that the majority are looking to actually contribute to their habit of drugs and alcohol, then our recommendation is that you not give them money, but instead you go and buy the drugs and alcohol. And if you get the drugs and alcohol, then you go and take away the risk that they would have to go into that dangerous neighborhood and buy it. And you can take on that risk for them. That's real servant heart stuff. You take the drugs and alcohol, then you go and you deliver it to them. They don't have to leave their post. They can stay right there and keep working the system. And so at that point, you do them a a really great deed. Does that sound ridiculous? Yeah, then why are you giving them money? Because by giving them money, all you're doing is... What? It's just the same as giving them drugs and alcohol, except you're asking them to take the extra step of going to a bad place and to do just that. If Seattle stopped giving money to those who were doing just this, they would not do this. It's that simple. The principle, though, is still we feel, though, don't we? When we come up, we want to do something. We want to respond somehow. So when we come up, we see them, we feel, and then we begin to play with the radio or mess around in our glove compartment because it feels really awkward to look them in the eye, right? So what do we do? My wife has come up with the Ziploc bag program. She takes Ziploc bags. She fills them with socks and gloves and hand warmers and bottles of water and granola bars and things like that. And then she makes a big basket of them by the door. We make sure there's some in our car. And then as we're driving along through the city, we pull up to an off-ramp and there's somebody holding the sign. And at that point, we can roll down the window and we hand them the bag. And then what happens at that point, once they see the bag, they take the bag and they begin to look at it to see if there's anything in there that they really want. And you begin to go, really? Here you are out here homeless, and you're going to become picky about what I just gave you? For crying out loud, it's free. You have nothing. You're looking for something. It says, I'm hungry. There's food in there. None of you felt that. I felt that. But then I learned this, that one of the best things that we can do for the individuals on the street who everybody in society is looking away, everybody is avoiding them, at that point in time, they begin to feel invisible. They begin to feel like they're not part of society. The best thing we can do is begin to engage with them. And this sets up a perfect scenario. We can roll down the window. We can hand them the bag. They start to look at it like, hey, what's in there? And then I get the chance to ask them, what do you wish was in the bag? 
because I know where they're going. I know that they don't necessarily like everything in the bag. What do you wish were in there? And they get a chance to think and go, you know what I really need? And I have delivered size 38 jeans to people on the street because that's what they really needed. They didn't really necessarily need the money. They wanted the money. What they needed was a pair of pants because they had the flu like we had the flu and they'd soiled their pants and they didn't have laundry. And at this point in time, they just needed a new pair of pants. And to be able to come by the next day and to know that that young man's name was Bruce and here are the pants. And Bruce, we eventually got into our dental clinic because he had a really bad abscess tooth and we got the tooth taken care of. And the great part of the story is, is that four months later, we got him into an apartment and we got him off the streets. I don't know that it started from the size 38 jeans, but what I do know is that the size 38 jeans, I also asked his name and I got to know him as Bruce. I began to have a relationship with him. And the reality is this, is the see, feel, act gets messy if you choose to act and it's why we avoid it. And the case with the, the Good Samaritan here, to go pick up the guy on the side of the road. It says he was bloodied, he was bruised. Now he's laying in the dirt. The blood is mixed with the dirt. It's now mud. And he's picking him up and putting him on his animal. And at that point, he's now bloody and muddy. Those are the things that happen to us when we move towards someone in need. So we avoid it. Now we could talk about this all day long, but I want to wrap up with one more passage out of Luke. This one is out of Luke 16. And it's a story that's... Again, very, very famous. It's the rich man and Lazarus. And out of Luke 16, verse 19, it says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. The chasm has been fixed so that those who are there with Abraham in heaven may not be able to get to the person in hell. This is a powerful idea that what it says about those in heaven is that they would go to hell if they could to serve those in need. That when they would see, when they would feel that they would be compelled to act, it's who they are as followers of Jesus Christ. They've taken on his nature, his character, his heart for somebody suffering. And so God has put a chasm to keep those who might actually act. That's crazy. But it speaks of the kind of people who follow this God, who follow Christ, that they have that type of character. The challenge for us is 
Why not cross the chasm now when the chasms are so much smaller? When it's the ability to roll down a window, when it's the ability to go across to the street to a neighbor, when it's the ability to send a text tonight to somebody that you know is hurting and just say, hey, you're on my mind tonight and I need you to know I'm praying for you. That's a very, very small chasm. But it shines the light that God has spoken to you about them and lets them know that the God of the universe knows they are alive and knows they're, they're in hurt and knows that now they should know that he cares for them. It's a beautiful principle. And for those of you who might be suffering tonight, there's a great part of this story that even though this Lazarus was suffering and sick and had wounds and everything else, friends carried him and laid him at the rich man's gate. And then when he died, it was angels. It was the angels of God who came and noted when he died and scooped him up and took him to heaven's gate themselves and laid him there for peace. And he was there with Abraham on that day. That God is aware, God is part of that. But the question that comes up with that as well is the question to you that I believe God speaks to each of us in a still small voice of those in our life that he wants us to reach out to. And I believe that God has literally laid people at your gate as well. You don't have to go to Pioneer Square to serve the homeless. It's the reality that there are people in your life right now that desperately need you to simply cross that small chasm now and to act. You see them, you feel. Let's act. Let me pray. Lord, even as I share this story again of my own failures, of uh, being resistant to be faithful to the very thing you're calling me to do, I'm reminded, even as I talk, of others in my life that I can indeed reach out to. And Lord, what a wonderful idea that tonight, in this crowd, that we would go home and that the phones would ring and in faraway places, and that love and forgiveness, mercy and grace might be communicated, maybe in person with hugs and visits and people delivering pizza or a warm blanket to somebody in need. Lord, that tonight we might become people who shine your light brightest because we get the idea that you've done this very thing to us. You've seen us in our suffering. You've felt compassion and you've moved towards us. Tonight, Lord, may you challenge each of us to move towards those in our lives who may be suffering. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.